Well, let me start by saying this. Uh, we have a wonderful church body. Uh, this church has continued to rise to occasions, and um, we had a funeral uh, yesterday, and many from this church contributed and pitched in, in in different ways to help meet urgent needs. And this is what Paul said uh, to Titus. He said, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. And so again, just continue to be proud of what the Spirit and the Word are producing in this fellowship. It's a beautiful thing, and just, I can't, you know, if I could name names, there'd be so many people here that are contributing in one way or another, sacrificing time and abilities and things like that. So just, I just want you to know, as the pastor uh, of this church, it is a blessing to be the pastor, uh, a pastor of this church. And so thank you all for being obedient and serving the Lord the way you do. Amen? Amen. Um, Let's get Bibles into everybody's hands. If you did not bring a Bible with you, uh, put your hand up and the guys in the back will bring a Bible to you. We have two places to mark today. Matthew chapter 26, as we make our way, uh, coming to the close of that uh, gospel. Of course, the story of Jesus does not stop there. It continues on through the book of Acts, uh, through the Spirit, and then on into today. The Spirit of God working in our lives. Matthew 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't know where those references are, you can look in the table of contents in your Bible. And that will direct you to the page number that you need. Matthew 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's pray and get into the scriptures for the day. Father, we are so thankful again that you have been our provider. Just as Abraham discovered on the mountain with his son, you are the God who provides. And Lord, so often we don't know where your provision is going to come from. We think it's going to come from here, there, and out of a whole different place, Lord, you provide. And you've always provided for this fellowship in a thousand ways, Lord, and in some. And so we do thank you. We just open up our hearts of gratitude to you. And we pray that our worship to you would match and equate with our gratitude. That we would not just simply be grateful with our mouths, but that our lives would be a living witness of our desire to give you glory, that your name would be lifted up in this world, even at the expense of our own reputation and of our own personal ambition. Lord, we, we declare to you uh, with, with hesitation, with understanding of our own weakness, that we submit ourselves again to you, living sacrifices. Just lay it all on the altar to you, Lord. Right now, we we lay our minds open to you and ask that you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we are in Matthew chapter 26, and we've got 1 Corinthians 11 marked. Uh, We are, of course, if you've looked ahead, we know there's only 28 chapters in Matthew. Uh, Beginning in chapter 26, we see that there were two days until the Passover. So we're growing very close to this Passover meal. If you don't know what the Passover meal is, uh, we will get to that during this study today. It, it kind of bears on, on what we're going to talk about. And so we're, we're just really at this point where we start today down in verse 14. This is the evening that Jesus is in the garden sweating 
drops of blood. It is the evening before the day of our Savior's crucifixion. The day he was nailed to a wooden cross uh, as, an, as a common criminal. Carrying all of my sin on his shoulders so that I could be reconciled to God. And, and that's what we're going to walk through over these next few weeks as we study this. We watched as, and we're going to draw a contrast here between Mary, the worshiper, who came uh, pouring out this expensive ointment, this spikenard, onto Jesus for his burial. And the fact that her story would be memorialized, it would be told as long as as we are reading the Bible. We read her story because there it is, and the Word of God is uh, eternal. So we see the story of Mary, and we, we meet again Judas, verse 14 says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time on, he sought opportunity to betray him. What a contrast between Judas on one hand and Mary on the other. And I think it's a contrast we continue to see uh, in our own lives sometimes and in people's relationships to one another and to Jesus. There are those who are givers. Mary was a giver. She came to life. She came to Jesus with the, the thought on her mind, uh, what can I give? And that's what she asked herself when it came to Jesus. What can I give? And she, oh, I've got this expensive, my life savings, my dowry. I can give that. And she, it wasn't, you know, she didn't sit there and think, well, you know, now I've tithed last week, and so, you know, how much really would that be? I give 10% of my ointment, that'd be 16 drops of the... No, none of that. She was freely, willingly, from her heart, pouring out to Jesus, what can I give? And then here we have Judas, and what is his question? What are you willing to give me? And some of us come to Jesus like that, don't we? Hey, what's in it for me? Is that... Are, are, how would you categorize yourself? I mean, it's hard to look in the mirror sometimes, isn't it? And we deal with this in the church and as the church all the time. There are those that are givers, pouring out their lives, pouring out their resources for the body of Christ. And then there are those that are takers that can never be satisfied. That, can, that no matter how much you give, no matter how much you do, it's just never enough. Have you known anybody like that? Or maybe, you know, maybe this morning you're thinking, wow, that's me. I'm kind of like that. I've kind of, I've been part of this church for a long time, been hanging out in the, in the seats. I can't say pews because we don't have pews, but we have seats. And, you know, you've, you've been sort of enjoying what you receive here, taking it all in, and we want you to take it in. But at some point you have to ask yourself, what can I give? Like Mary. Unless you want to be categorized with Judas. He's one of the twelve, which means Jesus selected him after a night time of prayer. Jesus knew what he was going to be doing. He was selected for that reason. He went to the chief priest. He says, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Um, Thirty pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. It wasn't very much. I mean, you know, he should have held out for more, don't you think? But he was greedy. That is the issue. Judas was a greedy man. We know from uh, other Gospels that he was the treasurer and he didn't really care for the poor, but he loved to, to skim off the top. And his whole life, listen, his whole life philosophy was about 
and his relationships with Jesus, his relationships with other people, had boiled down to what can they do for me? And that is a very sad way to live. And this is, this is what we know. Jesus said, if you want to keep your life, you've got to lose it. If you want to lose your life eternally, then go ahead and be like Judas and focus on everything you can get now from people and use people like that. But the fascinating thing to me, and this is what I was walking and just meditating on this the other, this is some time ago, and really realizing that this is, this is life. If you want to have an abundant life, truly, if you want to have a truly fulfilled and abundant life, you have got to give it away. And I can't tell you, I can't explain how that works, but you will never be more satisfied than when you lose your life, meaning that you give it away. You just give yourself away, you give yourself away, you give yourself away, and you think, ah, oh, it's going to hurt, it's going to be painful. Yeah, it is, but once the pain is gone, it feels so good. Because that's where a new life begins. That's what Jesus said. If you love your life in this world, you lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you keep it for eternity. And it's a beautiful thing. Maybe some of you understand that. Maybe some of you have, have uh, begun to learn that or have learned that over your life. Uh, it's something that I am still learning. So Judas is going to, um, for 30 measly pieces of silver, really not that much, going to uh, sell out Jesus. And maybe you've sold out Jesus at work on, on occasion or so. I think we've all found ourselves in that place on occasion. Now verse 17 says, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus. Judas would be in that group saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. So we're speaking about the Passover. Um, uh, People forget sometimes in the church that Jesus was Jewish. And so he kept the feasts of Israel. And, And what I love about God is that when he wants people to remember something, he connects it to food. Isn't that cool how that works? I mean, have you ever, I was thinking about this the other day. We've taken some trips recently. And it's like when I think about a trip or a vacation I've gone on, it's like I remember the places I ate and the people I was eating with. I don't, you know, it was falafel in Philly. We went to Philly recently and had, does anybody know what falafel is? It's really good. It doesn't sound that good, but it's really good. So we had falafel in Philly and noodles in New York. And just, and I remember sitting in this little, a hole-in-the-wall noodle place in Chinatown in New York and ate the best hand-pulled noodles. It was so good. And we had some of the kids with us and um, just these memories in my mind of, of these meals. And do you find that it's the same with you, that if we have these memories, do you remember it like an awesome meal that you had and who you ate it with and what were the conditions and how it tasted and everything? It's funny how the way to our minds is through our stomachs. And God knew that. So in Israel, all these feasts, all of them except for one, one feast is a fast feast that's not fast food, but fast feast. It's the Day of Atonement, and that's where they would fast. But the others are times of eating together. And the Passover was one of those. He said, hey, I want you, nation of Israel, to remember when you were delivered out of bondage in Egypt. Remember, they were slaves. They did hard labor in Egypt for such a long time, and finally God was going to deliver them out through the death of the firstborn and all the, the plagues and things. And So to commemorate that... God established a feast, a meal that they would eat together surrounding this lamb that would be slain and the blood of the lamb would be coated onto the 
the doorpost and the, the lintel over the door. And they would eat together and keep this feast. And that's what the Passover was. So Jesus is eating the Passover. It was this commemorative meal. It reminded them continually that they were once slaves, but they'd been set free. And that the blood of the lamb kept them from death. Those are the things they remember. So it's very significant because those of us that, are, that know the New Testament pretty well, we know that Jesus fulfilled all those. He is the Passover lamb that was slain so that the blood of the lamb would keep us from death and through that set us free from bondage, not to Egypt, but to sin. So a lot in there, we'll, we'll look more at that. But what, what I want you to think about is the cool thing is that this meal is connected to a memory because we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. This is the institution of the Lord's Supper. Some of us know it as the Eucharist, which just means Thanksgiving. Um, the breaking of bread. These are all names that we have for it. So he says, I want you to go and, and where, where do you want us to prepare this meal? And it took some preparation, took some time to get everything together and, and do it in the right way. There were herbs that they had to eat, bitter herbs. They would dip them into to vinegar or salt water to represent the bitterness of their bondage. And there was the lamb and there, were wine, there was wine, four cups of wine that be set out and matzah and this whole elaborate um, feast that they would eat. And so he tells, tells the uh, disciples to go into the city and find a certain man and just tell him, hey, I'm coming to have Passover at your house. I would love to do that. You know, just find some guys. Hey, I'm going to come eat at your place. And they were going to recognize this guy because he was going to have a pot of water on his head. And that's not typical for the men in that. It was typically the women that would go and fetch the water. So this would have been unique. And how did Jesus know he was going to be there? He knew. He was orchestrating the whole thing. So they went and they prepared the meal. Verse 20. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Again, we're going to read, as they were eating, as they were eating. A lot of stuff happens as we're eating. Not so much anymore because eating in our culture has changed, hasn't it? I printed out this article, and there is a purpose behind this. This is not just about the need for family mealtime. It's about the need for church mealtime and the need for communion. And many of you that have been around here a while know that when we first started church, I had sort of a communion crisis. Maybe you've had a communion crisis, or maybe I'm just the weird one that has communion crisis because I think about these things. Because I just, it just began to impress on me that what we do with these little cups and this little piece of this cracker it just somehow fell short of what I thought God wanted, of what God was hoping for in the Lord's Supper. And so I've done a lot of thinking and, and, and praying over this whole idea and, and wanting the reality to be more substantial. And the more I do so, the more I come to love and see the absolute importance and significance of the Lord's Supper. Because here's what's happened. We have TV church now. And I meet a lot of people that come in for help for the church. Or I meet them different places. Meet them on the street and say, oh, are you a Christian? Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Where do you go to church? Well, I don't go to church. I watch, you know, this TV show. I watch that TV show. And I say, okay, hold the phone. You're telling me you're a Christian, but you have no connection, no fellowship with other Christians around. Where do you do communion? How, how, how do you partake of communion? Well, I, I, I don't. I say, oh, that's too bad. Because when your family has a need, when you have a need, 
that TV pastor from whatever state he lives in, he's not going to be at your door with a meatloaf to help your family. He's not. He's not going to be there to pray with you when someone in your family dies. He's not going to be there when you lose your job. Because, you see, we are the body of Christ. And we are, the, the damage has been, I think, in that because communion has changed so much over the years, because it's become sort of a, a ritualistic remembrance, that we've given it little significance. And so let me read to you a little bit. Of, this is uh, from Time Magazine, The Magic of the Family Meal. Because here's Jesus. He could have done any, he could have celebrated the Passover and then set up the Lord's, you know, thing any way he, he wanted to. He didn't have to use a meal. But he chose a meal, and I think that's not by accident. And he chose to, it to be the Passover meal. Listen to this, the magic of the family meal. Just because we eat together does not mean we eat right, this article says. Domino's alone delivers a million pizzas on an average day. Just because we are sitting together doesn't mean we have anything to say. Children bicker and fidget and daydream. Parents stew over the remains of the day. Often the richest conversations, the moments of genuine intimacy, take place somewhere else. In the car, say, on the way back from soccer at dusk when the low light and lack of eye contact allow secrets to surface. Yet, this author says, for all that, there's something about a shared meal. Not some holiday blowout, not once in a while, but regularly and reliably, listen, that anchors a family. Even on nights when the food is fast and the talk cheap and everyone has someplace else they'd rather be. And on those evenings when the mood is right, And the family lingers, caught up in an idea or an argument explored in a shared safe place where no one is stupid or shy or ashamed. You get a glimpse of the power of this habit and why social scientists say such communion acts as a kind of vaccine protecting kids from all manner of harm. In fact, it's the experts in adolescent development who wax most emphatic about the value of family meals. For it's in the teenage years that this daily investment pays some of its biggest dividends. Studies show that the more often families eat together, the less likely kids are to smoke, drink, do drugs, get depressed, develop eating disorders, and consider suicide. And the more likely they are to do well in school, delay having sex, eat their vegetables, learn big words, and know which fork to use. All very important. If it were just about food, we would squirt it into their mouths with a tube says Robin Fox. IVs work well for that too. Uh, It teaches at Rutgers University, New Jersey, about the mysterious way that family dinner engraves our souls. A meal is about civilizing children. It's about teaching them to be a member of their culture, including the church culture. All kinds of social and economic and technological factors then conspired to shred that tidy picture to the point that the frequency of family dining fell about a third over, over 30 years. With both parents working and the kids shuttling between sports practices or attached to their screens at home, finding a time for everyone to sit around the same table, eating the same food and listening to one another became a quaint kind of luxury. Meanwhile, <clears throat> the message embedded in the microwave was that time spent standing in front of the stove was time wasted. But something precious was lost. When cooking came to be cast as drudgery and meals discretionary, making food is a sacred event. A few more things if you'll allow me to read on. What are the enemies to this? The enemies here are laziness and leniency. We're talking about a contemporary style of parenting, particularly in the middle class, that is overindulgent of children, argues William Doherty, a professor of family social science at the University of Minnesota. 
uh, Simple Rituals, uh, or he wrote um, a book called The Intentional Family, Simple Rituals to Strengthen Family Ties. It treats them as customers who need to be pleased. By that, he means the willingness of parents to let dinner be an individual improvisation. No routine, no rules, leave on the television, everyone eats what they want, teenagers take a plate to to their room so they can keep IMing their friends. The food court mentality, Johnny eats a burrito, dad has a burger, and mom picks pasta, comes at a cost. Little humans often resist new tastes. They need some nudging away from the salt and fat and toward the fruits and fibers. A study in the archives of family medicine found that the more family meals, uh, more family meals tends to mean less soda, fried food, and far more fruits and vegetables. Almost done. He goes on to say, a meal is about sharing. I see this trend when parents are preparing different meals for each kid, and it takes away from that. The sharing is the compromise. Not everyone gets their ideal menu every night. And so we, we recognize these things, and we're all convicted by this, myself included, that I, and I'm drawn back to saying, you know, this is important. And I, I shared with you guys about my trip to Europe when our family took a three-week vacation, and the real highlight of that was not the castles and all the traveling. The highlight was that we got to eat 63 meals together, three meals a day for 21 days, roughly. And that changed our family. And, and so what I'm telling you is that communion... It just literally means joint participation. And here we see Jesus gathering the 12, preparing a meal and sitting down to eat. And it's over that meal that conversations take place and they would sit around what, what we call the triclinium. It was a, a, a Roman table. They, they, they didn't sit like we do in chairs. They reclined. They kind of lean back and take their shoes off and have their feet washed. And then they would lean and the, the head of the table, the one who was the host, would sit at the very end of the table, and then the guest of honor or the oldest would sit next to him, and then on around the table in descending order. And they would sit, and, and they would take time. And so what I'm encouraging this fellowship to is I pray that God would heighten our, our desire to share and break bread together and to remember the Lord in, in the body of Christ in the breaking of bread. And to remember that we come together to serve one another to lose our lives for the sake of one another, just as he models it right here in the Lord's Supper. And we can get all into theology about, oh, is it transubstantiation or this substantiation? And I can't substantiate any of it, personally. I don't know about all that stuff. But what I know is Jesus said, remember me when you break bread together. Remember that I gave to you. And this is, as we go on, He's already talking about, verse 21 says, Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And sometimes we have that happen around a table, don't we? That's the danger. Uh, This is why we don't eat together, because we're afraid we're going to get hurt. Well, if I grow close to people, if I take that chance, if I open myself up, if I make myself vulnerable, someone might hurt me, and you know what? You're right. Someone might betray you. Anybody been betrayed? That hurts, doesn't it? Jesus was betrayed by Judas. This is, again, a guy that was just in it for himself. He was not a giver, but a taker. So Jesus knows how it feels to be betrayed, but doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to get betrayed, so let's not have this meal. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, verse 22. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? I mean, is it me? They're all around the table. Lord, am am I going to be the one that betrays you? 
and I think there's some wisdom in that from the disciples because sometimes our, we can, in our pride, say, oh, that'll never happen to me. Oh, I would never do that. Have you ever done, have you ever done that? The minute you say, oh, my marriage is good. I don't need it. We don't need that. I, oh, be careful. Uh, I've learned that in my own family. Just, uh, I don't ever want to take anything for granted and say, well, it's good enough. Because if, if the Lord said, oh, hey, one of you around here, your marriage is going to fall apart. I say, oh, Lord, is that me? I mean, it, could that happen to me? And, I, and it just makes me want to redouble my effort to make sure it doesn't happen. I don't want that to be me. So they're all saying, they all recognize, oh, Lord, it, 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 is it me? And he answered and said, and this is significant, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Now, to understand this, you have to understand something about the triclinium, this, this three-sided table with room in the center. It's just like a, a square U, you know, um, and in the center is where the servants would come and bring the food. And so who's at the, at the head of the table there is the host. And who's the host of this meal? Right, Jesus is always the answer in Sunday school. Jesus is the host. It's okay. He's the host and he's, he's the meal himself. We'll get to that. He's the host. And so what you would do, the host would break uh, the, the matzah or the unleavened bread, bread without yeast, would break that and enough pieces and sh- and share it with all of the people at the table but they can't like our tables are round and you can kind of reach across and say hey pass me that they were separate it was it was this triclinium so they couldn't reach across the table all the food was in the center and they were lying down on their side reclining and so jesus is lying on his side and the guest of honor or the oldest we don't know is sitting right next to him because then they would dip together the bread or the bitter herbs into the vinegar that represented the bitterness of bondage. And then they would partake of that. And then the next person would, would break and dip with the person after. So all the way around the table. So this is interesting because this means that Jesus was the host. And sitting in that first spot next to him, the seat of honor, was Judas. I've always Or Judas was the oldest of the disciples. Either way, it's interesting because he's the one who's betraying Jesus. The one who dips, dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. In other words, it, this was predetermined. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That's heavy. That's heavy. So it's interesting because we always wonder, well, is Judas, you know, if God is using Judas to accomplish his will, well, then how can God hold Judas responsible? That's God's deal. I don't have to worry about it. All I know is right here it says, on one hand, God's sovereignty in that from the foundation of the world, he determined that the lamb, Jesus, would be slain, actually crucified on a tree. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree that he would be crucified, not stoned, not strangled, not murdered by, some, by an angry neighbor, but would be crucified. So it's already been laid out from the foundation of the world. Before we fell into sin, it was determined. But yet, he says, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So although God's will is being worked out through his sovereignty, yet Judas is still held personally responsible for his actions. How do you sort those things out? I don't, not my job to sort them out. Just my job to know that I have a personal responsibility for the choices I make in this world. For the good ones and the bad ones. And, and uh, 
It would, be, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That's pretty serious. Verse 25, so Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? That's pretty amazing. I mean, Judas is good. He, isn't he? I mean, he is totally, he is in the midst of planning to betray Jesus. He's already made the deal with the chief priest, 30 pieces of silver. I'm going to look for my opportunity, going to look for the, the way I can set him up to be betrayed, to turn him over. And then he's sitting around the table talking about this. Jesus, nothing is hidden from him. Nothing, all things are naked and open before the Lord. And yet, he's claiming to walk in the light, yet he's walking in darkness. And, he's, and to keep up appearances, he says, Lord, is it I? He knows it's him. And yet, he's not willing to confess that, not willing to admit that. Now, I wonder if Judas could have at this point confessed and repented and said, Lord, it's me. Forgive me. I am a wretched man. I can't believe I even thought that. I'm so wrong. Could he have? Sure. Absolutely. If he was responsible for betraying him, he certainly could have been responsible enough to confess his sin. But he didn't. And so he, he, Jesus says to him, you have said it. Judas, I know. I know what you're up to. Matter of fact, in another gospel, Jesus says to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And the other disciples didn't know. They thought he was going to go you know, get some food or you know, maybe they ran out of Soda or something, I don't know. <laughs> the Dr. Pepper's out. You have said it. And again, here we are, verse 26. As they were eating, again, I want to highlight that. If, if you lead a small group, in your family you can share communion. Um, find times to eat together with one another. Make the time. I've never, listen again, one, one more thing. I'm so passionate about this. I've never seen anybody prosper that's not fully connected to the body of Christ and partaking of communion and, and relationships together with one another that are around a table. I've, I've seen a lot of people on the edges of the church around that they're sort of one foot in and one foot out. They're doing the church hokey pokey. You know, they got their right foot in and the right foot's out and then the left foot's in. And, and, and that's fine. And we don't, you know, we don't want to turn you away. We say, come, keep listening, keep growing. But the point is, you're never going to prosper as a Christian in the body of Christ, unless you take time and make time for one another. Is that, do we understand that? Are we, are we seeing that? The body of Christ is so important and the communion is so important. We shared it last week together. So they're around the table. And as they were eating, he took the bread at the, at the appropriate time in the feast and he Blessed it, and he broke it. That's where we get Eucharist from, giving thanks. And he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And again, those believe that this, the bread really becomes the body. It's called transubstantiation. That the substance is, is, um, changes. The, the species is the same, but the substance changes. It still looks like bread, but it's different. And others believe that Jesus is present somehow in the communion elements and we tend to hold to the idea that this is a memorial, that it's, 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 we use grape juice and, and matzah. The real miracle of the communion is that we're, we have taken Christ into our lives, that he is dwelling in me. Uh, whether he dwells in the, whether he is the, the communion elements or he dwells in them, I don't know. I'm not saved by my knowledge. I'm saved by faith and the grace of God. 
and I know and we can know for sure that he dwells in us. This is a mystery, isn't it? This is a mystery. Christ in me, the hope of glory. So as we, he said, he, so, and this is the last thing I'd be thinking, what would you be thinking about if you were less than, you know, maybe 12 hours away from being crucified? Would you be thinking about, hey, I want to have friends over for a meal. And, and I'm going to serve them. I don't know. I'd be, have a hard time concentrating, I think, at this point. I'd be pretty spastic, personally. But Jesus takes time. It's his last supper. And he takes time to share it with his closest friends and to serve them. I had you mark 1 Corinthians 11. We're not going to go there. Take time to read it. Take time to read it. It outlines some things uh, regarding the communion and the fact that as a body, th- this is what matters. When we, when we say we represent the Lord, we represent Him through representing His nature, His character. And when we share and we break bread together and we share the communion, Jesus calls us to examine ourselves. Paul calls us to examine ourselves Not whether or not we're worthy of it, because how many of you know we're not worthy of it? I don't deserve that. But we can do it in a worthy manner, the way we do it, not selfishly, but selflessly. That's what represents him. That's what honors Jesus when we when we come around the table and we're serving one another. Take eat, this is this is my body. And he passes out and then as a lengthy meal, verse 27 says, then he took the cup and it was the fourth cup. There were four cups and the father of the family would recite something out of Exodus after each cup was, uh, being, had been drunk or was, was being drunk. The father would recite something and now they're at the fourth cup. And the fourth cup of wine is poured out and the blessing is pronounced and the father would pronounce this blessing. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe who has created the fruit of the vine. And then the father recites, or, or the host, recites the fourth verb from Exodus 6, 6 to 7. And this is what it says. Then I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so when Jesus does this, the fourth cup, he gives it to them, and he says, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So it's very, uh, reading between the lines, if you know how this meal worked and how it was celebrated in Jesus' time, uh, what they sang when they went out were were Psalm 115 through 118 called the Hillel. but all of this, this is my blood of the new covenant, the covenant of grace that connected to, he says, it's shed for many, it's shed for you, for the remission of sins. What does remission mean? You know, sometimes it's not like, you know, when, you're, when your car is acting up, you've got to get the remission checked, that's transmission, what is remission? You can write this if you like to take notes next to the margin, because that's a funny Bible word. We don't always know what it means. You can write liberty, or you can write release. 
This, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the release or for the liberty of sins. Not the liberty to sin, the liberty from sin. That in His blood, we find freedom from not just the penalty for our sins, but even the power that sin has over our lives. Don't we? It is, in, it is His... So here we have... His, he is showing, he's my body. You know, look, I'm giving it all. My body broken for you. My blood, which is the life, your life is in your blood. My, my life poured out for you. And then he says, when you do this, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. And so we sit around the table or we pass out the elements and we remember we are forgiven. Whatever guilt you've brought, whatever shame you have, whatever thing you think God cannot forgive he says this is my life for your forgiveness this is the covenant in in my in my blood it's not about your good works not about earning your way it's about jesus christ pouring out his broken life for you and his body will be broken on the cross and his blood will be shed fantastic Uh, the, the the lord's supper um, if you are interested in doing some further research, I'll direct you to Exodus chapters 11, 12, 13. You can read um, the Old Testament uh, version of the Passover meal and, and the institution of that. And then Jesus comes and redefines the whole thing, takes it, and, and no longer is it about remembering the freedom from Egypt and a lamb that was slain. It's about remembering him and him, his provision of our freedom from sin. So a lot to think about today, and certainly that's not a full dealing with the Lord's Supper, but um, I hope that some things are clear as we leave this place today, and I hope that it's challenged you in some ways. Mary, the giver, remembered forever for her act of worship, selflessly, willingly, Jesus, the Savior, Remembered forever for his act of worship and his act of kindness and his act of love, broken body, poured out blood. Judas, the taker, remembered forever as the man who hanged himself and his guts poured out, ended his life miserably. And, I'll, and the challenge is that's, I think, holds pretty true for us. Those that are givers versus those that are takers. Those that live and give away their lives find complete and utter satisfaction in Christ. And those that continue to take find themselves miserable in so many ways. It's true, isn't it? Hard to hear, I know. Hard to hear, uh, but it's true. And so I pray that Jesus Christ would have his way in your heart. Have his way in your life. That you would invite the Spirit of God to come in and dwell in you by faith. And that we as a family... Uh, we as the body of Christ would gather together and make time and enjoy when we eat together. Moms and dads, you know, around the table, share what God has done in your life with your kids. Pass it on to the next generation. Tell them how the Lord has been faithful to you. Tell them how the Lord set you free from sins. Amen? Amen. Amen. Phil, are you going to come up and close us with a song? As we, as we close, if anybody uh, just needs prayer, feel free to come up. Uh, and receive prayer. You can pray right, right where you are. I don't have any special connection to God. Um, he can hear your heart. That's all prayer is, speaking to God in your heart.
and you can ask him to minister to you.